welcome to the Art and Science of Success. I'm your host, Jonathan Brown. Now this 12-part podcast series has been created to help you make the most of the recovery opportunities, however long they last. In the last 12 years, I've worked with some of the world's top leaders, companies and teams to help them create success in highly challenging situations. And in that time, I've got to know some of the world's top practitioners and researchers into the toughest situations we can face. As we work to rebuild our businesses and even our communities, I wanted to offer some free resources and insights that I know help leaders because we use them every day helping our clients to deliver amazing results. So I asked them, what insights and ideas do you have that leaders can apply to help them survive and thrive whatever happens in the next few months or even the next few years? We have to find ways of inspiring our people to become even better. And if there was ever a time for you to do truly great work, to truly be your best more often, it's today. So I hope these podcasts will help you in some small way to create even more success for you and for those you care about. Welcome back to part two of our interview with Professor Mike Matthews of the US Military Academy of West Point. In this episode, we continue our discussion into character-based leadership and his latest book, The Character Edge, co-written with General Bob Caslin. We look into what the research shows about character, what it is and isn't, and what you can do to improve leadership using it. And we also look at why people succeed and fail. I hope you enjoy it. What I'd like to get into now, Mike, with, you know, with the time that we've got left, is to move into the work on the book. And I know you introduced something right at the start, which is the, the concept of the dash. And what I wonder you, you get into now is just to share what that is, and then also talk about the difference and also the complementarity of, of eulogy and performance strengths and, and character traits. Yeah, so we open the book and actually close it with the same sort of analogy and go through any cemetery and look at headstones and, and there'll be a, the person's name. Someday there'll be one that says Michael D. Matthews and blow it, it'll say 1953 dash. That's hopefully it's 2153. Wouldn't that be awesome? Nuts. You might still be teaching at West Point. I mean, sometimes it feels that way. <laughs> it's a, it the Mr. Chips of West Point, mate. But anyway, so so you think about that dash. You know, you, you live, whether it's 30 years or 100 years, and, and you sweat and toil and prosper and win and lose and and achieve and fail. And that little dash really, really sort of signifies a lot because there's not a lot of room on a headstone, right? And so if you really look at a headstone, you think about that person. What does that dash represent? And so you could be, we sort of talk about there being two sorts of things that that dash represents. And on the one hand, I think we're all feel this way to some extent, you want to have some, what do we call them? Uh, resume, re resume values. I think we call them in the book. What'd you do? You know, so when I'm dead and gone, I mean, I like people to know that, you know, I, I taught for 40 years, at, you know, and I, I educated, you know, 7,000 students and, you know, written some articles and did the X, Y, and Z. And, you know, my site, my works were cited 15,000 times by other scholars, you know, that sort of stuff, right? More corporately minded person might want to say, well, he finished with $1.3 billion in his bank account. <laughs> you know, it, it's stuff you've achieved. These, these achievement resumes uh, or resume or, or values. On the other hand, you know, I think we're more inclined to look at that dash and think about that point. What kind of person were you? Were you a kind person? Did you make others better? Were you the sort of person that inspired other people? And if you really ask people, if you had to choose between these uh, resume virtues and eulogy virtues, I think at the end of the day, we'd all rather be remembered for the kind of 
good person we were rather than, you know, how many dollars we had left in the bank or uh, how many, in the case of a scholar, how many papers you published, something of that nature. That was our thought, you know, and, and, and the thought was that if you examine character and the role of character and how to, what it is and, and how to develop it and its role to trust and its role of character in, in leadership and in positive organizations, that can help you build those eulogy virtues. Doesn't mean you can't be doing, achieving other things. In fact, some ways we argue that, that being strong in eulogy virtues are probably going to build your uh, performance virtues as well. Yeah, I know there's been so much dreadful stuff to come from this last year. So to acknowledge that. And at the same time, we've had a year to reflect on. I do hope that the values realignment that I seem to have seen with people valuing family more and being grateful for the smaller things. Like, I mean, we we saw my mum for the first time in six months last week. And just to cherish those moments and to recognize just how valuable they really are. One of the things you get in positive psychology, right? To gain perspective. In all, you know, in X years of time, how important will this be? And you realize a lot of the time we've been working on stuff that's not that important and it won't make that much of a difference. It won't, it won't contribute to a eulogy. It's not that, you know, the lives that you've made a difference of and, and the example you're saying at West Point and General Castle and stuff around, well, he doesn't want the hall named after him. You know, he wants to live on in the, in the hearts and minds of the people that he's led and the people that he's developed. And that for me is very much the, you know, where I'm at. What I love about the book, Mike, you talk about a bit more about this in, in more detail now, is how practical focusing on character and can be and, and certainly is with, you know, with you guys in the, in the military, but also I know with you in your corporate work as well. I just wonder if you give us that framework that you use in the book around the different types of character. Yeah, first of all, I just really want to emphasize that a couple of things. One is character is not just one thing. You know, so character is a lot more than just being honest. You know, it, it's many things. It's being dependable and it's being modest, perhaps. And yes, honest, but also it's, it's capacity to love and it's uh, being fair to others and a whole bunch of things, right? And so if you adopt that view of character and the view that I adopt is, comes from the laboratory of Dr. Seligman, Marty Seligman at Penn, he really thinks, and he and, and Chris Peterson, who came up with this theory, there really are probably 24 character strengths that are identifiable in human beings, regardless of what culture or nation you built grow up in. And uh, my short working memory won't allow me to, to rattle off the top of my head all 24 of these, but if you're interested in them, you can Google 24 character strengths and, and you'll see what they are. And so that's kind of neat in that, you know, we're not all going to be high in each, every one of them. In most cases, human beings are complex. We have strengths and we have weaknesses. And because your character not, might not be quite as strong, perseverance, for example, maybe you give up a little bit easily. Maybe you're really strong in some of the humanity strengths like capacity to love and caring for others. So you have strengths. We all have strengths of character. And one of the things that we want people to know is become aware of what their character strengths are. Learn to intentionally leverage your existing strengths to solve your problems and to achieve good things. And to some extent, if it's important to you, if there are some strengths that are not so high on the list, maybe there are some actions that you can take to enhance those strengths. That's one point. And so that the point being that character is not just this unidimensional thing. There's, there's many facets to character. 
The second thing I would tell you is that character is a learnable thing. You're, you, so let's say you're out there, you're 30, 37 years old, and, and you know, you may think, well, I am what I am. I can't change. But we know from both the laboratory and from, from practical experience that people's character does change and evolve over time. You should have the mindset, to borrow a, a popular term now, a growth mindset that you are capable of changing your character. And sometimes you change your character changes because of things that happen to you that you, you can't control. So for instance, uh, you're the victim of a bad accident, you're injured very badly, you get very, very sick, and you then recover. These are very traumatic things like that. You're a combat soldier and you're wounded, and or you've just seen a lot of bad things. And after you return from combat, you suddenly find, wow, after I've gone through that, I really care about my spouse more than I used to. I really value time with my children much more than before. Okay. So the second factor is, again, to summarize it, that character is not etched in stone. It can change. And we can talk about that. So if you go to uh, Google and put in the 24 character strengths, you'll see what they are sort of categorized into, into six sort of superordinate, what are called moral virtues. That's all well and good. It's, it's a, I really like that taxonomy. But I found it useful to think of there being three types of strengths. Now, these are not always mutually exclusive, okay? So it's not like the periodic table. It's not perfect. But you can think of, of these 24 strengths, there's a subset of those, which can be called strengths of the head, this thing, your head. And these are things like capacity and love of learning and curiosity and wisdom and perspective. And you know people like that. In fact, a lot of your teachers were probably high in strengths of the head. Okay, scientists are high in strengths of the head. Lots of people are. And you can see the utility of having strengths of the head. Now, we're not talking about IQ because IQ is one thing and your, your zest and interest in learning is another. Okay, that's more of a character strength. The second sort of larger category that we could group some of the ones together, subordinate strengths together are called strengths of the gut. These are things like bravery, and grit and determination, your willingness to, an ability to overcome adversity, even if it's painful and, and unpleasant, grit your teeth and get through it and come out the other side. So that's the second group. And the third classification are strengths of the heart, strengths like capacity to love and kindness, caring for others and forgiveness. So in the book, we, we devote the first chapter is introductory, but chapters two, three, and four are devoted to strengths of the head, strengths of the heart, strengths of the gut. That relates to you, all your work on grit, doesn't it, with, with Angela Duckworth, I think. Yeah, so you know, here's some, some important things I want to say about grit. So grit, G-R-I-T. Now, Jonathan corrected me exactly what this means, but if I travel around England for the first time, I go to these old rural intersections, and you'd see these containers that say grit. Okay, That's true. And me, I took pictures of them, put them on my Facebook pages. I thought that was pretty cool, you know, and uh, that the Brits were way ahead of us when it came to grit, ahead of Angela Duckworth and I. But, you know, stuff that you put down on, the, on a slick pavement to allow your tires to have traction, allow that vehicle to do things it might not be able to do without that grit, right? So maybe there's an analogy there. But you're probably, most of you are familiar with this concept and grit Duckworth and I uh, define as the passionate pursuit of long-term goals. You have to have passion, mm -hmm. something you really care about, and it's got to be something more than just, oh, let's say, you know, running a 5K today. 
it's got to be a, a long-term, you graduate from college, getting a medical degree, you know, whatever it might be in that sense. And so since the publication of our first paper on grit in 2007, I think there's been like 6,000 articles, other articles have been published, which refer back to that paper. It's been very influential. And, and people, I think, have become gritaholics in some respect. And that, that grit's a good thing. I'm first tell you, grit's a good attribute to have. We know that gritty cadets do better at West Point than less gritty cadets, and they more likely to graduate, and they have better grades, and, and they're less likely to present to our counseling center with psychological problems. All that's well and good, but human behavior is complex, and achieving and flourishing and being resilient in tough situations is more than just grit. So I would, I would want to make pull on this string a little bit more, Jonathan, if you'd like, but as important as grit may be, these, some of the other character strengths are equally important as our competence and, and caring and, and your physical wellness and your physical well-being as well. So let me just pause that and see if that pressed any buttons. Do you want to want no, to? No, uh, 100%. And I think that the whole thing around the, the way in which in the book as well, you, you take it beyond grit, that it's essential and insufficient. I think for me that one of the things that this is the whole, you know, 2021 looking forward, then the need for long-term goals I think is is particularly important because we've all we've all shortened our time horizon because of the crisis, and so to actually you know actually set yourself a, a challenging goal that's years in you know years ahead, I think that could be a, a terrifically agency returning process that you could take. I think, and that and it's also again it's like well if you've got a, a, a big enough long term goal, then that then is much easier for you to have courage because you believe in that you know goal and it, and it's intertwined again with the you know with your heart and the, the meaning or and helping and serving others. And that, again, gives you more grit, right? Because you know that it's important and it, it gives you meaning. Well, you're spot on. You're absolutely spot on. So there's a growing literature on the relationship between grit and resilience. I think about this because of the pandemic, right? Because it's that common experience we're all having. But every single one of you out here listening to this have other things that have challenged you, other adversities and hard times. Whatever it might be, it could be a divorce or you lost your job or an ill, whatever it may be. But we found that you know, scientists are finding that grit was originally decided, designed or found to be a predictor of basically achievement and success, like finishing college degree or graduating from West Point, whatever it might be. We're also finding that grit is important in resilience and adjustment. I think you hit right on exactly why, Jonathan. So think about this. You know, psychologists for many, many years would tell you one of the most important things about resilience and mental health is a sense of agency and a sense of accomplishment. If you have and cultivate the uh, trait of grit, you begin achieving sub-goals. When you achieve a sub-goal, but you, you feel good. I accomplished this day. I'm one step closer to the big goal. That builds self-confidence and self-efficacy, the belief that things that happen to you in your life are at least somewhat under your control. You don't give up. You turn that back into harder work. And then you achieve another goal and yet another. And all the while, this builds meaning and purpose. If you're passionate about that goal, by definition, that goal provides you meaning and purpose in life. And my message to anyone who's, who's interested in resilience is meaning and purpose is ultimately the most important thing in defining the good life. The resilient life, the, the flourishing life depends on meaning and purpose. Now, you don't have to be, everyone has different things for meaning and purpose. It doesn't have to be the same for everybody. And um, a trick 
life is finding those things for which you have passion and, and then letting that passion drive success, which reinforces passion, which gives you meaning and purpose, which reinforces grit and life gets better. You know, mate, and, and you're such an example for that, because obviously, you know, I nearly passed out talking about your achievements. It was so long. I had trouble breathing. But it's Sorry. also reassuring for the mortals among us that you were in an English, to use an English phrase, a slacker at high school. Oh, my God. You have no idea. <laughs> You know, but the thing was the story that you told us in, in you know, just earlier, which was when you when you got into psychology, something shifted and you found something that you think, hang on a second, this is oh, okay. And then you honed in on it and then you've been following that path ever since. And I think that's the the whole thing is that and if people are struggling with with obviously with grit, you know, we're tired out with everything, but to connect with stuff that matters most, you know, is an achievement imperative. Because otherwise, you just won't stick with it long enough in order to be successful. You've got to be aware of and hunt the good stuff in life. You know, so, so that's a, a great message for everyone is that, you know, you're, you may be in a, a sort of stasis in your life right now. Maybe you don't see a, a way out. Things are the same. Like the movie Groundhog Day, you may recall every day is just a repeat of the same day. But if you're alert and aware and looking for this, you may be lucky to then latch on to something that's really going to inspire. You might be 47 years old when that happens. Or, you know, there are great, like Grandma Moses, right? The great painter. Didn't she not pick up a paintbrush until she was, you know, mm. quite old? Yeah, I think 60s and even maybe even be 70s, maybe. Yeah, I was, I was thinking that. So there's there's no time fuse on on finding that niche in life, which allows you to flourish. You know, I was fortunate that I found it when I was 18 or 19, but I have lots of, when I teach this to my cadets in the class I teach on cognitive psychology, and we talk about a couple of lessons on achievement and IQ and whatnot. So, you know, you just don't realize, most of us, how overarchingly important that the setting that you work and live in is to your success. So I'll just amplify my own example a little bit more. So until I came to West Point, I was an okay psychologist. You know, I was just kind of like checking the blocks and, you know, I, I could have kept doing that. It would have been an okay career. You must have been a little bit more than okay, mate, to get to West Point. <laughs> well, they, you know, they saw promise. <laughs> they, they, maybe, maybe he's got hidden talents. Is that what they They said? gambled. They gambled <laughs> on me. But Well, he's tall. He can change light bulbs. They probably were thinking I could help the department's basketball team, you know, because these are veterans. Considerations that don't usually come out, you know, in hiring decisions, but it could be that. But from the day I arrived at West Point, it was like I was like a kid in a candy store. There was so many things to do and so many interesting things and people who mentored me and to be around and to mentor. So if you did like a cumulative graph of my, say, which way you're going to go, so up is good, like my productivity. It's kind of going okay, kind of a, a low slope monotonic increase. You know, I didn't get any smarter. It wasn't any different. Like my competence wasn't any different. It was the environment was such that it that matched my interests and things I love most in life. And then if you if you're doing what you love, then you tend to do better. Now it's really hard if you're sitting out there listening to this and say, well, I'm a, a police officer on the beat, you know, and been there for 15 years. And it's really mundane and humdum. I just don't see this in my life. But yeah, it could be there. You need to pay attention to it. So this is something I'd like to ask you about, really, because in the towards the end of the book, you talk about character risk and the, the three aspects, which is that so it's the the interpersonal, 
So what's inside you? And then there's uh, the context or the environment. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you've got the, the organization slash system or the bigger, yeah. the bigger right. picture. So what I'm wondering about is why you guys call that character risk instead of character amplification or character manifestation. That's a good point. I think if we go to the second edition, we may just change that to the, the character growth model. It really could be both. Yeah, in the sense, what you just described there is you were in, and there's something about West Point when I was there that is, that's very special, right? I mean, I've been in great places before, but there was something, well, I mean, sacred really about about that space that I we agree with. And the point is, we agree with that, but you know, not everybody is. But but there is such a place. Everybody has their West Point. Yeah. Like, so, so, but the thing is, is and so you that then the not only was the environment, but also the organization. And then also, if you look at the transformation that happened in behavioral sciences at West Point through that period that you've been there. And also the other thing as well, and I think that, you know, the plus side of things being so bad right now and us having so much to do to turn things around is if there was ever a doubt whether leaders mattered or not, then that has now been squashed. Right, because what a leader does in the next 18, 24 months will, you know, will be a profound importance and significant, even down to your individual choices. Everybody's been prompted and being forced to make choices that will that will last years. My former colleagues deceased now, unfortunately, Chris Peterson, who was one of the icons of positive psychology, he had a saying, it should be a bumper sticker, just other people matter. Other people matter. You know, you start as a building block in your personal relationships and in your leadership relationships and your followership relationships. It becomes a sort of a simple guiding principle, which which makes life better. And I think all too often we get caught up in the day to day fires of the day. Right. The, we all work even at West Point. We have training we have to do or we have this suspense or that suspense. And sometimes you all these little ankle biters sort of detract from the big picture of the importance of what you do. But if you can maintain perspective and, and, and treat people the right way, that builds into this idea of a positive environment, positive culture, whether it's West Point or, or, or somewhere else. Mm. As a leader, then, as I'm coming back, so if you could just recap on the, what you describe as the character risk, but the, basically the character something model, the character development model of, Let's just take for now, let's call it the character risk model. It was written in the context of why do people fail? Okay. Right. If, if, it, if it had been presented in a, in a chapter where why do people excel, I think it could have also fit there. But as I thought about why do people fail, so a great example, it's then four-star general Dave Petraeus, up and coming, one of our leading military officers of the day, I mean, almost level of some of the World War II generals in terms of fame and impact. And most of you may know, uh, that he ran afoul of a, a character issue. He had a, a relationship with a with a woman, not his spouse, during his time as a four-star commander in, in uh, think, Iraq, and then compromised some classified information to this person. And this was against the Uniform Code of Military Justice. It was against the law, and he pled guilty to uh, a charge. And was uh, it all came to light after he was active duty. Right. So he was actually you know, head of the CIA, if I remember correctly, for a while. So all this sort of came out after the fact. But the fact is that this is a hyper-competent individual. And 99.999% of his life, he was a person, the leader of character. And he does care about others. And yet, and I'm not 
not at all an apologist. You know, I think for, for what he did, the repercussions were, were appropriate. But you ask yourself, if a Dave Petraeus can have a character failure, and we know this anyway, all of us can. Well, it's good to be aware of the trip wires or the traps that all of us encounter in a life. And so I'd say, well, what are these? And well, there's too many, just a list, but they come from these three, three sort of domains. And I put them together as a Venn diagram with three overlapping circles. And when they all come together in the middle, you're at really high risk. The first one is called intrapersonal factors. These are just your personality, your sort of your basic psychological makeup. You know, so there are people who have diagnosed what's called the dark triad of personality. So they not very, very honest, you know, and they narcissistic, and they're just just kind of in it for themselves. So that would be an example of a risk factor within that intrapersonal thing. Maybe you're indolent, fancy word for lazy. Maybe you're just kind of a lazy person. That's a mate, that's probably by itself not enough to cause a problem. Maybe or maybe it's not, but that could be considered also in that part of the diagram. But then also then to consider the next circle, which is the context or the environment in which you work in. So maybe um, you're in an, an occupation which is really, really high stress, and therefore you don't get to sleep enough, or you have endless deadlines, or it's really noisy and you breathe smoggy air all the time, or people are insulting you all the time. And just, just imagine environmental or contextual factors which are stressful. And for the combat soldier, you know, you could see that as being a contributor to someone who maybe already had a bit of a personality flaw, could cope okay in garrison outside of combat, but they come into this high-stress combat environment that could trigger a, a character flaw or some behaviors that are inconsistent with their values. And the third, and this I think is the most important factor because we can kind of control it, is your social and organizational environment that you work in. How good is your family relationship? What type of organization do you work for? Is it an organization like the San Antonio Spurs, which puts character and positive values first? Or is it an organization that puts bottom line and sales first? And the heck with people. And so the point of the character risk model is you can almost like analyze your own life and, and say, okay, let's let's just do a checklist. How am I doing intrapersonally? Yeah, you know, I am kind of lazy and Maybe I tell too many fibs. You just be honest with yourself. Or, or maybe there are issues there. Well, then analyze what type of environment are you operating in? And, and on the negative side, are there things, stressors in that environment that could contribute to character failure? On the positive side, are there attributes of that environment with good behavior or appropriate behavior? And then you can do the same thing with the social and organizational uh, sort of factors. So we went through a couple of, you know, quite a few case histories of individuals that we've known. And it's, it's a useful diagnostic tool to try to make sense of, a, of an individual case. So what can happen then? Someone can get into trouble because, so there's an environmental shift. And I know, I mean, you, you yeah. talk just about just simply getting your sleep and, and the way in which that can exemplify character flaws rather than character virtues, um, just because we just get exhausted. So the importance of taking care of yourself just as a simple aspect. But it could also be that there could have been a change in his relationships or something. Like there can be a change in your relationships. So you're no longer supported the way that you were in the way that you most appreciated. And that could either be to exemplify your strengths or it could also be to mitigate any weaknesses. So let's just say that you had a bit of a temper, but because your wife or you know your husband was, was particularly understanding, 
you come home from work and have a download and then that's then you're all then you're much better but then you're working yeah. away and you don't get to have that approach you right. don't get to have the you know the daily check-in to download and to debrief and and to get clear everything away and so you're on your own and then you start to explode more because that person isn't there to help you anymore that's exactly right and so see all of these factors contribute so if you imagine again this venn diagram there'd be some places where two of the three factors kind of overlap. And there's, of course, the middle where all three overlap. And if you've got risk factors in all three, and if they all come together and you've got some intrapersonal personality issues, you're in a, in a terrible environment and you're in a bad family, bad a bad marriage or with a dysfunctional organization, those all come together. That is a recipe for problematic behavior. And I think what I love about the, the, the book, Mike, is, is how you and Bob talk about the process starts with understanding where you're at your best and and why and how the how you generate your best, which is the first part of the book. And then you look at it, looking at the bigger situation, which was well, okay, so environmentally and and, and organizationally or societally, what's your best place? And when that isn't there, then what what risks do you have to deal with and manage and anticipate? And just in the spirit of comprehensive soldier fitness, is that you can prepare for this, right? You can use your strengths to to deal with the issues in your in your environment and in the in the broader context but you've just got to prepare for it and and also the the other thing that you guys stress again and again is the importance of reflection and of humility both as a leader but also as a as a leader of others but also in leading yourself so i think it's pretty super critical to differentiate between things you can do as an individual you're right on you know you've mentioned them you know how do i make myself a better person, you know, and you can look at your personality and you can look at the context you work in, you can look at your relationships, but in incumbent upon leaders because they have control of at least one, if not two of those circles, right? Mm-hmm. They, they're in control of the organization to set the tone of that organization, which can promote positive social relationships, which will mitigate against potential intrapersonal flaws. And a good leader can also, like a military leader, can have some impact on environments. So your soldiers are in a combat situation, well, you're going to let them sleep out under a tarp or you're going to work hard and make sure they've got tents. Are you going to just put them out on watch for 48 hours a time? Are you going to come up and be smart and have a rotating system where soldiers are unable to get enough sleep? I cannot emphasize enough to everybody listening. All the science is pointing to lack of sleep is driving a lot of our problems, both mental health-wise and in terms of like character and leadership failures. You know, I don't know General Petraeus personally, but I knew people that worked for him and mentioned Pat, that he uh, he didn't sleep, took pride, like many army officers, took pride in not sleeping very much. Uh, he ate lightly, our bar for breakfast, go out for a 10-mile run at a six-minute pace and do that all day, every day. You wear yourself down. You're not taking care of your, of your body, your mind, or your soul if you don't do that. So, and what's more, not only was he just using this sort of case study, hurting himself, but by modeling those behaviors, he's, he's setting a tone for the rest of the organization that it's okay to not take care of yourself. And, mm-hmm. and it's important to know that as a leader, there are actions you can take to make things better for your followers. And by doing that, this sort of addresses this issue of character, character failures in, a, in an important way. And the, the thing that I'm working with, you know, with, with clients at the moment is just to help them to appreciate that this is an ending. This is beginning. In which case, if you're tired now, then just wait for six months, right? So in that sense, and it's going to go on, this, this recovery is going to take so long. It is, we must get in shape. 
It's not a case of, you know, I don't have time to, we don't have time not to, and just to take care of your people and take care of yourself so that you you have a chance to being at or close to your best when it matters most. And mate, I know we're, we're, we're heading for ending the time. I just wondered if we could briefly cover the research on when we face what you call the crucible of life experiences in the book um, and the different paths we can take, but also as well for people to, to be thinking about when, if, you know, shit happens or they're anticipating it, what can they do to maximize the chances of coming out, not just in one piece, but actually coming out stronger? So let's start with the premise that while each of us have unique individual lives, the one thing we have in common somewhere along the line are hard times and adversity and challenge. It's just part of the human existence. And some of us probably have a little more of it than others. I feel like I've lived kind of a charmed life in a lot of ways. I'm very grateful for that. But on the other hand, we've had the pandemic. You know, when I was a police officer, I saw some pretty terrible things. We've all lost loved ones through our lives. You know, if you've lived any time, you've lived long enough, you've probably lost your parent or, or another loved one. Things happen. And this is what we mean by the crucible of life experiences. It's, you know, inevitable uh, that we're going to experience situations and events which sometimes shake us to the core. The question is, is how do you come out the other side? And and part of the answer is by preparing yourself emotionally and physically and spiritually before the adverse event. That's basically the, the philosophy behind comprehensive soldier fitness, to learn and empower yourself, those, those human skills and capabilities that allow you to face adversity. And not that you won't suffer, but you will ultimately emerge at least as well, if not stronger. Um, a second point I'd make is that being human beings, we all fail. We all have character failures. I've done things that I wouldn't want to admit to. I'm sure most of us have, and I'm not proud of. And it's how you respond to those failures that differentiates successful people and well-adjusted people versus those who aren't, who aren't so. We find, for example, at West Point, I mean, one of the worst things can happen to a cadet, short of being badly injured or killed or something in a training accident, is to be accused of an honor violation. So like, we have an honor code at West Point, and will not lie, cheat, steal, or tolerate those who do. And these are young people, and so someone will make a mistake, and they will lie, cheat, or steal, or tolerate someone who does, and they get caught. And basically, just make it simple, we can throw them out. We can, we can boot them out of, of West Point and shamefully, you know, send them home, send them packing. And sometimes we do, depending on the nature of the event. Well, think about where they're coming from. And in many cases, they're the first kid from their high school ever even got into a service academy. You know, they, there are kids I know I've had in class who, before they go to West Point, they have a parade in their honor at their hometown. Like, Joey or Joni's going to go to West Point. Hooray. And then imagine the shame of coming home, you know, having not just, the, it'd be one thing to flunk out, but been thrown out. Okay, so it's a huge thing for most cadets to, to be charged with that. And so, you know, what we have found is that when someone does make a mistake in something that really matters to them, that truly matters to them, that this provides the potential or the groundwork to learn from that mistake and to come out stronger from it. So, we use the example in the book of a bone that's broken and properly set. It's actually stronger than it was it had before, before the injury. So we have, we have a program now at West Point used frequently, especially for junior cadets, younger cadets who haven't been here so long. You know, older ones maybe been here longer should know better. They make a mistake of this nature, an egregious mistake that could have gotten thrown out in the past. 
Well, instead of just automatically throwing them out, expelling them, we enroll them in, in an honor mentorship program. And it's not just a simple thing. You know, there's a repercussion. They may have to spend an extra year, a fifth year at West Point. They may have to spend some time in the actual army. They meet with a mentor for at least six months, maybe a year. It's not just random discussion. I mean, they sit there and, and systematically go through a number of, of I've, I've been an honor mentor, so I know, I know how it works. So the, so the cadet that's involved in this has to engage in, in, a, in a large number of really effortful, meaningful exercises to learn more about themselves and character. And if after they emerge from the honor mentorship program, the honor mentor and the others in the chain of command and the superintendent, the three-star in charge, agree that it looks like it worked, we'll let them stay. And some of our very, very best cadets have been through the honor mentorship program because they made a mistake early. And the organization stuck with them because they saw a promise in them. And in the end, the Army got gets a... Uh, a better leader than they would have had if the kid had just kind of gone through and not caused any trouble. We would love to see every single one of our 4,000 cadets get to be in an honor mentorship program without necessarily having, you know, transgressed any rule. We think it's such a powerful thing. So I guess probably saying more than you may want to hear, but no, we encounter these failures in life, these, these crucible events, even, even if you fail and you struggle, you can learn so much from that experience, especially if guided by a mentor and you have that strong social organizational environment around you to, to help make that happen. So I think it's a lead, another leader imperative that when your subordinates and your followers do struggle, you have to take punitive steps as you may, but also recognize that person may be not only worth saving, but may become a better person if you work with them to get past it. I think it's one of the things that I've, I've spent most time on thinking about that book and the power of forgiveness that you guys developed at, at West Point. And, I, and just to stress, General Catherine was very clear that, that if you want to have any form of redemption, there has to be repentance. And the person has to admit that they've made a mistake and they, it was on them. And he's very clear in the book and in the yeah. podcast that I watched that if they don't accept that, then they are gone so fast that they're going to be home before they've realized they've left West Point, they're moving so fast. I think that's there's been so many things that have happened in the last year for people, hasn't there? And and it's like well, actually that there is that power of of forgiveness. And I think that's it doesn't mean that that there's that there's weakness or failure forever. It means actually you've you've got a chance if you approach the recovery properly. And I think that's it's one of the things where now you're that links with the with the post traumatic growth, isn't it? Really? Yeah, I'm going to amplify on that just as we kind of get close to the finish line here. So. You know, everybody's familiar with, with the concept of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. You think of it in terms of uh, police, law enforcement officers or firefighters, medical frontline workers here in the pandemic, people that encounter more than just a rough patch, I mean, really severe circumstances. And then they suffer in terms of depression or anxiety, you know, intrusive memories, these sort of psychological sorts of pathologies. And it's a real thing. I mean, it's, it's a real thing. I mean, even have a, a biological basis in the brain. There's some evidence that in some cases, in some people, that high stress like that can change the anatomy of the brain, certainly its physiology, and it becomes really a psychiatric problem. It's, it needs to be properly dealt with and addressed and treated and so forth. And so, so I don't want to minimize it. But it turns out that's only one of only four. There's actually four trajectories that tend to describe how people do uh, to things like pandemics. And so pathology is one. Second one I'd comment on is called invulnerability. There are some people, and you probably know some of them, you may be one, fortunate enough to be one, 
you just take a licking and keep on ticking. There's a that comes from an old commercial for Timex watches. So, you know, you just kind of keep going. You don't get better. You don't get worse. You just sort of soldier through. And, you know, I think my parents were a lot like that. You know, my dad was fought in World War II and in severe combat conditions in the Pacific, you know, and, and they endured the depression and put up with my brothers and I and somehow came out okay, but they didn't get better. They didn't get worse. They just kind of kept going. That's the second one called invulnerability. Third is resilience. So resilience is a, is a desired outcome, right? So if you find yourself during this pandemic or perhaps you're going to divorce or it may be, it is absolutely normal to feel worse and to have lows and that don't self-label yourself as permanently mentally ill or something like that. It's a natural human response to adversity. But the resilient response is you come back to baseline over time. So after the pandemic eases and you kind of reintegrate back into normal life, you won't be permanently down. You've been down for a little while, but you're going to come back. And that's a far more common trajectory than, than pathology. Okay, so that's, that's, that tends to be the norm. And the fourth trajectory, and you mentioned it, Jonathan, is, is called post-traumatic growth. In this trajectory, just like resilience, you encounter a rough patch, you suffer some emotional consequences, let's say. Instead of coming back to baseline, you actually get better in terms of some aspect of your life. I've studied this in, in American combat officers. They return from, from very you know, uh, challenging combat rotations at the height of the war, feeling that they are, are more honest, that they value their families more, their capacity to love has increased, their capacity to forgive has increased. They become, in, in short, better people. So, so let's review. There's four trajectories. There's pathology, which we hear about all the time, and for good reason. There's invulnerability, which you don't hear about much because it's not very newsworthy. There's resilience. You bend, but you don't break. And then there's growth. You bend, but then you rebound above baseline. I think it's just a really, really important message for everyone who's listening to know that our human response to adversity is complex. It's not one thing. It's a lot of things. And, and you could probably take these four trajectories and superimpose them on each other a little bit. I've worked with combat veterans who have PTSD symptoms and still struggle, but at other aspects of their life, they were better and stronger than they were before the combat experience. Life is complicated. Human adjustment is complicated. It's not simple. So I would take hope uh, in that human beings, we tend to be resilient, but hope is not a plan, right? Hope is not a plan. My military colleagues say that all the time. It's nice to be hopeful, but read the book, Follow some of our advice about, about how to build your strengths of the head, the heart, and the gut. And then when you hit that rough patch, you should be situated in a better position to come out as resilient or with growth, as opposed to presenting with a pathology trajectory. And you know, and that's the thing, if, if anyone's wondering, okay, so that's great, Mike, you've just introduced that just as we're wrapping up. You know, how do I make sure I get resilience or, or growth? That's been the topic for the last two hours. And, and that's, I think, your work and, and the, your contribution to, to the field. It's all about building character or rebuilding character, which is what, what they do at West Point and what, if you face you know, tremendous setbacks, that's what it's about is reflect, find a mentor, find someone to help you and, and have a powerful social support system. And it's the relationships around us that make the difference to be in community with people who care about us and we care about them. And I think that's the thing that probably, you know, that stands out with, with you guys in, you know, who, who stand in, you know, in, in harm's way. 
there is that feeling of of connection and and service with each other and it's certainly something we very much need much more of now in civilian communities well one of the positive things there's no positive thing about war war is horrible we should never have them hope we never have another one but i'm not optimistic about that right no but you look out throughout the history of warfare and i talk about this in my book headstrong the this revolution how psychology revolutionizes war Every war we've had since 1900 has, has resulted in a huge incremental sort of nonlinear advance in one science or another. So in World War I, it was, it was chemistry. The, the uh, you know, applied in bad ways, mustard gas and better explosives, but chemists really did bigger and I guess not better, worse things in some respects. World War II, it, it was physics. That was a physics war, most clearly demonstrated by the atomic bomb, but also by radar. It's a physics issue. What one historian calls World War III, which was uh, the Cold War, was an information technology war, you know, advent of computer science and so forth as being predominant and just, just a mushrooming of knowledge in that area. And what this historian calls World War IV, which we sometimes call the global war on terror, it's psychology. Psychology is that science which is amplified up as a result of this war. And so of all of those sciences, chemistry and physics and information technology turn to pop. The things that were learned to foster warfare can also be turned to make life better for us. Mm. And so I think that particularly when it comes to resilience and human adjustment and achievement and, and living the good life, well, I mean, the things that have sprung from psychological science as a result of this these unfortunate wars will be a good thing for all of us, not just soldiers and their families, but all human beings, whether a corporation environment or a sports environment or an education environment, whatever they may be, all of us. It's it's a it's a spin-off, which is going to be good for everyone. I certainly hope so, Mike. When we look at your work and the character edge and you know leading in dangerous situations, headstrong, all the stuff that that people can can get a hold of and I know you've been you've been very generous with your time here, and you are with with others as well. So I'll put a link with some of the some of the best interviews that you've done as well. And your work's fantastic, mate. And it's it's certainly the word that you've been in and around your you know your department and and around West Point and all the extraordinary scholar, the warrior scholars that have come through those doors in the last 10, 15 years has just been transformational in my own practice. So thank you. On a thought, one of my favorite quotes from the book Band of Brothers. You've probably seen the film, many of you have, uh, about American rangers who, who landed Normandy and went all the way to Germany. The very end, one of the, one of the combatants is talked to by his grandson. His grandson says, now, were you a hero in the war, grandfather? He says, no, but I served in a company of heroes. And that's how I feel being at West Point. I'm no hero. You know, I'm not the, the genius behind this, but I serve in the company of heroes. Uh, these these men and women, uh, officers and civilians alike, have been so privileged to work with. And without them, none of this would have been written or talked about. Mike, thank you for your service and thanks for your time. All righty. This has been the Art and Science of Success. I'm Jonathan Brown. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed today, be sure to visit alppartners.com, where you'll find the show notes and other resources. And if you join the community there, you'll get access to even more battle-tested ideas to help you create success for yourself and your organization. And you can also arrange a free call to explore how we can help you accelerate learning and performance in your organization. And if you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe 
And if you have a minute, pop over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to give us a positive rating. Thank you for listening.